0: welcome to bobby osinski's inner circle i'm bobby osinski and this is a show all about music music production and the music business my guest today is the lead guitar player for blue oyster cult buck dharma but first of all let's talk about stream fraud or actually online fraud for streams and views yeah people are figuring out how to game the system it's always been that way as soon as a platform gets popular all of a sudden it gets gamed well This is happening both ways, from artists and also from listeners, surprisingly enough. One of the more surprising cases is Tidal. And they've been investigated for falsifying tens of millions of streams of the latest releases from Beyonce and Kanye West. So what that means is... Both of those artists are making a whole lot more money. Plus, they can turn around and use that as publicity, saying, look at all of the streams that this particular album is getting or this particular song is getting. And as a result, it snowballs. And people say, well, it must be good if that many people are listening, so I better listen as well. That's one of those things that you don't expect a platform to do. But since it's owned by Jay-Z, who's Beyonce's husband... Well, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Then there's Playola, and that's paying for playlist placement. Yeah, just like in the old days of radio when we called it Payola, where you paid in order to get placed on a radio playlist. Well, now it's the same thing that's happening only on Spotify, more so than other platforms. And this can cost you anywhere from five bucks to five thousand bucks. In order to, and some cases there are very long campaigns in order to do this, and it will cost tens of thousands of dollars. Much of it is legal, some of it is illegal, and in fact Spotify is trying to clamp down on this. Then we have fake YouTube views. Yeah, you can buy YouTube views for as little as five thousand for twenty-five bucks, and fifty thousand for two hundred and fifty bucks, and a lot of people do that. Although one of the problems is it looks good, but you don't actually make a whole lot of money. It's only useful to add some authority. Again, it's one of those things where you can say, well, look, I have 100,000 views, even though they don't come from real people. Once again, YouTube is trying to crack down on this, and they've actually been successful in many cases. There's one company called Divumi that's actually sold 196 million YouTube views so far, and they've just been thrown off the platform, which is probably a good thing for everybody. Then we have loop videos. What's a loop video? Well, record labels will take a hit record from their label, and they'll just take a snippet of the song, The Hook, The best part of the song and they'll put it in a loop in a video and these will get tens and hundreds of millions of views because it's like i say the best part of the song so once again youtube is trying to crack down on that as well then on the other hand we have users who are kind of gaming the system how do they do that well by using an ad blocker and when you use an ad blocker of course then that means that the artist who streams on a free tier doesn't get paid at all. So, even though you don't get paid all that much from Spotify or Apple Music or any of the streaming services, you're going to get paid nothing when someone uses an ad blocker. So, what ended up happening was Spotify removed 500 million streams and 2 million listeners as a result. Problem is, if your streams were in that 500 million, then they weren't counted at all. And that's a drag since A lot of people might have liked what you're doing but it just doesn't count. Now, if you think you can buy streams and likes and shares and all that stuff, yeah, you can. But, you know, the problem is that everybody's getting hip to this, especially record labels. So once upon a time, labels look to see how many followers you had, how many streams, how many views. All those things are really important. And they still do. And it still is important. But you know what? They really try to corroborate everything. So it's getting harder and harder to actually do this. So don't buy things Do it organically, do it the right way because it'll cost you less money and it'll actually mean more in the long run. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, is now available and it's the number one bestseller on Amazon's Music Business Books Chart. Thanks very much for all your support. I really appreciate it. The book is comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from the interviews from this podcast. You'll find it on Amazon and most of the online book retailers, as well as a bookstore near you. Now when it comes to buying a mixer or console, one of the things that we've seen is the prices really come down. At the same time, features go way up. Now, a report from future source consulting in the UK really takes a look at the console market, and this includes mixers down to 100 bucks. And what they found is that low end mixers are now so advanced that they outperform mid-price mixers from about five years ago. Most sales now are in the low end, low end meaning $500 or less, and in some cases even $100 or less. The total market is still pretty big though. It's 724 million and it's growing by 5% a year. Now, that being said, high-end consoles, as you might think, just aren't selling the way they used to. But they are still selling, just not in the same amount. So, where are they selling to? Well, broadcast. Broadcast always needs recording consoles. And they all need big ones. Touring, of course, always needs consoles. Large venues need consoles. And these are getting, for the most part, digital consoles. Schools, however, are still buying consoles, and believe it or not, they're buying analog consoles. And this is to teach people in their recording programs, which is kind of ironic since most of them are not going to be using analog consoles in the future anyway. So the market for analog is really shrinking, and yeah, it's not too hard to believe. Buyers now expect a whole lot more for a whole lot less money and that includes more inputs and outputs and built-in effects and DSP. So the mixer you'd buy for cheap these days is so much better than what it used to be not that many years ago and of course we see this with just about everything in the musical instrument and pro audio business where you're getting bigger, bigger bang for the buck and who's going to argue with that? you've undoubtedly heard the music from this week's guest because his band's music has been in constant rotation somewhere in the world for the last 40 years or so. Buck Dharma is lead guitarist and one of the founders of Blue Oyster Cult. He also wrote and sang lead on some of their biggest hits like Don't Fear the Reaper, Godzilla, and Burnin' For You. Buck and I talked about the early days of the band when it was called Soft White Underbelly, his best studio experiences, the evolution of his home studio, and the differences in touring these days. We spoke via phone from his home in Maryland. I really want to go back and talk to you about some of the contrasts in your career, especially like when you first started. So, can you tell me like some of the gigs that you guys did as Soft White Underbelly, the band that eventually became Blue Oyster Cult?
1: Sure. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the gestation of the Underbelly was in uh, Stony Brook, basically around Stony Brook University. None of us attended stony brook but uh, that's where uh, sandy perlman had graduated sandy being our our uh, mentor manager and uh, lyricist for in the beginning and it was meeting sandy that sort of convinced me to to give uh, professional music a try i don't you know i don't think i really would have had a plan otherwise but uh, that's the way it started and uh we survived we bought our peanut butter and and, and jelly and bread um, in the early days by playing uh, gigs at Stony Brook with dances at Stony Brook. And we did that because um, Sandy's friend, Howie Klein, would hire us for these appearances. We also opened up some of the concerts there. And, of course, Howie Klein later went on to... Uh, Start four one five records and then uh, become the head of sire and uh, retiring a uh, a wealthy fellow.
2: Yeah, yeah, right.
1: Later, but at that time he was you know he was the head of the, the whatever the um, they called the social board that had you know, controlled the budget and the hiring of uh, entertainment acts. So anyway, we you know we he'd throw us like a two hundred fifty dollar gig every every month or so and. Or, six weeks or so, and we survived on that, basically.
0: Were you playing, like, clubs and things like that?
1: No, we didn't really play clubs until uh, we basically failed the software and underbelly, and we needed to play clubs just to survive. And then we did pe- spend about a year and a half between the underbelly and, uh, and the uh, eventual evolution into blue oyster cult playing we did play club dates and we played a lot of copy material and it that had the benefit of sort of honing the band's uh performance skills a little bit too you know
0: yeah i remember those days where there were plenty of clubs to play and of course that's where you got good back in those days it was the farm team so to speak
1: yeah yeah well we were sort of good as a as a as a psychedelic band you know and and uh you know whatever you would call what the underbelly was, but I couldn't say that we were polished in a in a uh, you know aggressive or commercial or entertainment sense you know
0: but the uh,
1: obviously the early days of the underbelly and the the music that was recorded I don't know have you ever heard that music I don't think so it was um those those we were signed to Electra as the underbelly and we did about almost two albums with the stuff and during that time, the original singer Les Bronstein departed and Eric Bloom replaced him. And so there's some recordings with less on vocals and there's recordings with Eric on vocals. Wow. And we thought that, uh, that they had just been, well, the problem was, is that, uh, Elektra had a falling out with Sandy and, uh, just decided to, um, you know, eat the expense that they had in us and not release the music. So we thought that the, they were gone because Electra went through a couple of mergers and sales and who knows what happened, all that. But anyway, it uh, turns out they still had the tapes and Rhino put them out, I guess, I must have been the early 90s or late 80s, sometime around then. They made about 3,500 copies of it or something. I don't know if it's still available anywhere. I, it might be, maybe you could stream it. I don't know.
0: What was that like to go back and listen after all these years?
1: Um, it holds up of my ear, I think it's it's really it's really good stuff, and it's definitely uh, unique. You know, it's I mean, we neither the the Royston Culture or the Underbelly really sounded like anybody else, and uh, certainly at the time of the Underbelly was was a a wonderful time of of creative output in the music business. And, You know, bands were just coming out of every direction, and they all sounded different. They all had a point of view. It was really, really nice. It was a good time to be alive and listening and making music.
0: Well, speaking of creating music, let's talk about writing songs, because there are a few people that are really good right off the bat, but most of us have to learn, and it takes a long time. So what was the evolution of you guys writing?
1: Um... That was a it was a unique experience for us to begin that, but um, again we had some excellent and and potent I think uh, lyrical input from Sandy Perlman and Richard Meltzer, and we very much kind of just pounded out the arrangements in in rehearsal in those days. This, this preceded. Uh, multi-track tape recorders being available to the uh, you know the the musician and not just the the big studio, but even the big studios only had four track on those days. So we would rehearse constantly. We had a band house, and we would just basically rehearse all day long and uh, work out these arrangements. and And uh, Sandy would listen to it and make suggestions. He was a odd fellow. He passed away last year. Yeah, sadly. Yeah. But he knew so much about music and and had a feeling for music, although he wasn't particularly musical himself. You know, he could. I don't. I don't know if he could ever sing in tune, or you know, even his even his rhythm wasn't that good. But boy, he just, as far as the cerebral end of what what popular music was, and and uh, you know, and having his finger on the pulse of the uh, the emerging album. You know that was it, he was just phenomenally talented, and that's how we sort of learned to do it. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. What was your first experience in the studio like?
1: Uh, my first experience um, I didn't have to worry at all about, <laughs> about the technical end of it. you know yeah. you just come in you 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 know you you set up your amplifier and the engineer puts a mic on it and uh, then you go you know and uh, it was a thrill. It was great, you know, and our first experiences uh, happened because uh, Sandy was able to get uh, demo time from several, several labels. We did a demo for Mercury, we did a demo for Columbia early on. We did a demo for Electra before the uh, before we made those uh, before we were signed. And uh, so we actually got some some, uh, New York City studio experience by doing that. but of course, you start to, you know, you grok and, and, and ask most the uh, creative process and how it's done, the technical end of it, you know, so it was, uh, it's great. I've always loved being in the studio.
0: When you guys first started, was it in the time of 8-track or was it 16-track?
1: Um, no, it was the time of 4-track.
0: Oh, four, four or, track I guess.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, right. Um, our first album for Columbia uh, Blois de Cult, self-titled, um, that was recorded in a, a jingle studio that was owned by uh, David Lucas and his partner Tom McFall, um, Lucas McFall, and they were one of the prominent jingle houses in New York at that time. And we had met David at a at a party upstate New York, and said, you know, come on down and we'll do something. So, so that first record was recorded as a master purchase when we signed with uh, CBS after that we had to record in CBS's studios, but the first record was done in David's studio on a Scully A track and he had the first A track in New York City. Yeah. Of course I guess, you know, everybody followed suit pretty yeah. soon, but that was the first the first uh one inch A track.
0: That was the machine that I learned on a Scully A track in an MCI four sixteen. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the first album was 8-track, and uh, then I think we went 16 after that. And then, of course, we went 24 eventually.
0: So you guys, you started in an era, wonderful era, where you're used to playing live in the studio. Yeah,
1: we always did basics live. You know, Of course, yeah. we did up overdubs, but uh, we tried to do as many as the instruments on the basics as we could.
0: And is that right up until today?
1: Yeah. I would say we, we've played to click tracks and not the click tracks and we've we done it every way you could do it
0: pretty much. Okay well that leads me to the question that you've done a lot of different ways you've seen the technology change you've changed with it when you had to and you have an overview of this as I do what do you feel most comfortable with when it comes to recording is there a way that just seems like it works and that's Is it a way that you think that everybody should work, or it just works for you?
1: Yeah, well, if if you listen to what's popular today, it's it it bears almost no resemblance to the way we recorded. Yeah, you know, unless it's an artist that like that. You know, I mean, there there are artists that that are still making music in real time and and and, on a collaborative basis, but uh, you know, most of it is here. It's it sounds like it's all done by a keyboard player. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, and you know,
1: not to say that it doesn't have merit, but it it doesn't have a lot of pull for for me. You know, that's you you hear the uh, occasional real piece of creativity or, or you know novelty, but the genres of of popular music today just don't don't really do it for me.
0: Now that being said, everything goes in a trend, so hopefully that will come back soon, back around. I keep my fingers crossed on that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's it seems like the spectrum of what's out there and what's popular, even to to young people today, is really varied. You know, and, and and certainly a lot of a lot of young people like you know roots music, real music, acoustic music, you know, all the traditional stuff that uh, you know was basically the only thing out there when I was coming up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. You were into home recording early.
1: Well, when we first started recording, we had a we had a Sony stereo machine, and we that's how we would, you know, document what we were up to. Uh huh. And then, of course, uh, the the TAC four tracks are the first uh, accessible multi-track machine that, uh, in our day. Yeah. And that really changed the way we wrote and arranged, also. Because, the you know, the writer in in at home could basically flesh out an arrangement with the with overdubs and then bring a more coherent and closer to finished um, arrangement to the band before the band ever got a hold of it.
0: Okay, how did that sit with the band? Because there are some bands that feel, oh, wait a second, when you do that, you're not allowing any of my creativity to seep in.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's not as if the demos were slavishly obeyed because you know they would evolve from there. Mm-hmm. But uh, it definitely moved um, the the composition into a more uh, formalized um, conception. You know, based on the the author's original conception compared to the old days. And but we all had the machines, and we all did it, so we, <laughs> we didn't oh. mind doing it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We thought it. We thought having a you know a multi-track in your house was just the wonderful, most wonderful thing.
0: Yeah, I didn't have a TAC. I had a decoder.
1: Yeah, yeah. I had a TAC, and uh, the rest of the guys had decoders, Although they eventually got TX.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was a better machine for sure. Yeah. So, how did your studio, your home studio evolve then?
1: Uh, I've always had a place to work. I've moved a lot of times in my life, and I've, ne- I've never had. What I would consider to be a a, a full on release grade studio, except maybe for today. You know, I'm I'm confident that anything I do in the room I'm in now could could go out, you know, and, and withstand sonic scrutiny.
0: That's pretty cool that you could say that.
1: Yeah. Well, what I've done, the only thing I've done is 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 I have a space, and I got a professional acoustical consultant to to design. Some, you know, materials, which I um, then procured and put up, and
0: it's, the room sounds great. It really does. Yeah, that's a big key, getting the room to sound yep. good. It's not the gear. Then again, you've had so much experience in the studio already that, let's face it, it's not the gear, it's the knowledge behind it. It's not the hammer, it's how you swing it, so to speak.
1: I guess, yep. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoy the engineering side, but but I'm definitely an amateur. You know, I just don't do it. I don't put enough hours in it to be a real expert at it, you know, pro, the pro audio engineers just work so fast and they they know what works and what doesn't yeah. where, you know, I'm always experimenting and trying to, you know, come up with something,
0: you know, on my own. Was there one recording experience where you walked away and thought, wow, I really learned a lot from that?
1: Um, I learned a lot working with Martin Birch. Martin Birch, the producer yeah. of uh, Iron Maiden, and he was—we uh, did two records with him, and he was—he was very generous with his with his uh, engineering knowledge, and he taught me a lot about how to just, you know, it, it, doing what real competent pro AES do. You know, just get it done. They know how to do it. You know, it's, they like to experiment too, but you know, they always know how to get it on tape. You know, so
0: that's good. Was his approach any different from the guys that we worked with in New York?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. Obviously, when we recorded with, uh, at the CBS studios, the, the staff engineers were totally competent, and they, they, again, they make records day in and day out for Columbia. But you know, Martin definitely had a, uh, a, a more rock approach than those guys. It just had more of an attitude. He, he Martin did the on and origin record and the coltasaurus record mm. they they definitely have have a sound that's you know different than the rest of our catalog
0: What did he do exactly I you know I'm very familiar with Martin I I love his work but I've never really heard a lot about him and how he worked Can you fill me in
1: Well he, he's an engineer producer he does yeah. everything Yeah and um and he he basically knows what you know what he wants And he's getting it on the way in, you Mm -hmm. know, into the machine. And, and that's, that's a, that's a great skill to have. So he's already thinking about how the finished product is. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of, a lot of people from that era work that way. You know, they, anybody who puts up a bank or a a, a preamp or, you know, or compressors on the way in, they know, they know what they're going for. You know, otherwise you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't committed at that point but that's the way it was historically you know you yeah. would commit to to uh right from right from the recording like going on you would commit to what what you knew it was going to end up as.
0: i wrote a book with ken scott one of the five Beatle engineers in doing so he yeah he's awesome ken scott yeah yeah he yeah. is and, and he told me a lot about in writing the book about the abbey road culture the emi culture it was funny because they were limited in what they had when we look back, and yet they did so much with it, and it sounded so good. And here we are today yeah. with unlimited choices, and often it doesn't sound like that. You know, we can't get close to it. It makes you wonder, like, what are we missing here?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it, it could be the acoustics, you know, the just yeah. the sound of rooms, you know, the... Yeah, because that's how they they basically corralled the music in the old days, right? You know, yeah. they just they, they made a room that sounded good, and they, they they had the best gear they could, and and the uh, and the rounding of transients from the from the, the mediums and the, and the gear was was uh, was pleasing to the ear.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, what's in your studio now, gear wise?
1: Um, well, I've got a, a Macintosh-based um, DAW. And my my main DAW is digital performer. Oh really? Yeah. And uh I've got a small amount of outboard gear. I've got some clones of uh LA two A's and I got some and some Poltec clones, the new Clark Tactic Poltex.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: Got uh got a Neve flavored preamp and uh, some some solid state pre's. I I use Metric Halo. Um, interfaces using mm-hmm. a ULN8 I don't know I got some other ones and I got a got one eleven seventy six clone and I've got a Camper for, for a guitar which I use mostly now even though I've, I've got amplifiers and stuff it's just I find the Camper is really really good for the purpose and I'm happy with the way it sounds
0: Are you using it live as well? No
1: um, it's not that I wouldn't but I haven't committed to doing that yet, you know. I I still like to have a, most of our uh we do about 70% fly dates now. When we just go up across the country and play on a rented back line. Mm-hmm. And I I typically spec a Marshall JCM 900s and I use that, but I use that with a a two notes torpedo load box and uh and uh, uh impulse response generator. Mm. So, so so my my uh, my cabinet and mic sound is the same every night and that's what front of house gets and that's what uh, my engineers get wow even though i use a, even though i use a monitor cabinet on stage too
0: yeah i saw somewhere that the guys from metallica are touring with i'm not sure if it's kemper's or axe effects but it made me wonder it was like wow if you guys have given up your well, they were boogie guys, I, I guess. If you guys have given that up and gone to modelers, wow! <laughs> what does that say about the state of amplification these days?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's the stuff's good these days. What can I say?
0: Yeah.
2: And
1: uh, we did a bunch of uh, European festivals, big festivals last year, and I was astounded how many of the metal acts were using either campers or, or axe effects.
0: Really. The metal guys?
1: Yeah,
0: yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Wow. It's a different world. I have a, a friend that's a exec VP at one of the, the major amplifier companies, and he keeps on regaling me with stories about how the business is getting worse and worse, and even on a small scale, you know, the, the little $100 amplifiers, student amplifiers, are just getting away from it. It's not uh, something that guitar players think about these days. Unlike the way it used to be, where you know that was so much a big part of your sound, and you spent so much time, like the perfect wave, trying to get the perfect amplifier.
1: Right, and and in the early blue oyster cult days, we used to get, you know, if there's a new new stack amplifier, we we buy it. You know, we had Straps, we had uh, we had the uh, Boogies, we had the uh, Music Men, we had Marshalls, we had high watts, we had we tried everything. You know.
0: Wow, what was your favorite?
1: Um, The uh, JCM 800 was great, although it was that was before master volume or anything like that. And uh, you know, I'm a short guy, and I used to stand in front of a stack (laughs) and just deafen myself. (laughs) (laughs) And we we were opening shows too, so we'd we'd have about ten feet from the from the lip of the stage back to the you know the next amp, the next axe gear. (laughs) So that was rough. <laughs> you know, didn't really think about it at the time, but you know, I'd like to have those uh, ear ear cells back. You know,
0: <laughs> how's your hearing these days?
1: Yeah, it's uh, I, I've got a I've got a dip at 4K, you know, and I've got uh, uh, you know tinnitus pretty much all the time. But I probably don't hear any worse than anybody else my age.
0: Yeah, I'm lucky like that too. It's not terrible. Yeah. like other people. Gee, I have a friend that was an iron worker, and he's far worse than, than I am. You know, so just- right. This goes to show you. How do you find touring now? I mean, you've done it for so long. Yeah. And touring has become a real business now. It's different than the way it was. It was a business then, but you know, now it's down to a science almost. So, uh, how do you find it these days?
1: Well, you're right. You know, touring is is mainly the way you know the band supports itself. You know, I I could probably survive on on royalties, but uh, I like to play and uh the band likes to play and the band is great these days and traveling gets worse and worse and like we're doing this this model of of mostly fly dates and and we work mostly weekends we go back and forth Mm -hmm. and ironically we we net more income now than we did when we were playing arenas So, (laughs) so but of course it's that's because we had a big production and three buses and three trucks and all that stuff in the day. We don't do that anymore. Yeah, sure. But as far as playing goes, just love it. i just, I enjoy it. And I think as long as, as it's good, I could do it indefinitely, you know, but if if for any reason I couldn't do it, I couldn't sing or I couldn't play, I'd walk away and bow out. But in the meantime, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's it's a job, of course, but uh, it's a good job.
0: Yeah. Once upon a time, fly dates was what everybody wanted because it was so much easier. But you know what? Flying is harder than it's ever been. I think, and that takes so much out of you. It's almost better to be in a bus. I think it's more relaxing.
1: Yeah. We we do buses. Like we we were in Europe for 18 days. We did a bus. And we're gonna go to UK for uh, eight days in February of 2019, and we'll do a bus. But we don't do enough um um you know what do you call a tour, you know, where it's it's all booked in advance. We we do dates where we get good offers and if you have to fly to get there, then that's what we do.
0: Yeah, sure. Sure. What's the most fun thing that you do these days in music?
1: I I like to like to uh just play acoustic guitar and sing. That's fun. Although it's all fun. You know, I I love playing uh, the band's repertoire. Fortunately Bloor has got a really deep and varied repertoire of nifty songs. Yeah. I don't get tired of playing the band's music. You know, it's it's good. And also, we don't play stuff exactly like the record. We never have, and we probably never will. There's a lot of improvisation in the way we do it, and uh, that keeps it interesting for us because we have to entertain ourselves.
0: Was that always kind of built into it? Did you know you are going to do that, or did it just kind of happen?
1: Personally, you know, I've I've always liked to improvise you know, on, 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 uh, lead, lead breaks and, and not so much the, the arrangements, but certainly the, the, uh, solo sections.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I've always done that. And, and to this day, and, uh, and like a lot of, uh, a lot of bands that have been doing it a long time or artists, you know, sometimes you evolve an arrangement, change it, do it on the fly. You play with different people and it sounds a little different, but it's always, coherent as far as the putting the song across you know i don't think the song ever suffers for the changes
0: you know what it's funny because as an audience member i never felt that when i heard the band actually i, I what i'm going to say is as an audience member sometimes there are certain things that i miss from the record when i'll, I'll listen to it and mm-hmm. it might be a riff it might be it might be uh, like an interesting fill sometimes it's even a bass line you know a, a bass fill or something it's like oh god mm-hmm. i miss that I've never felt that with bluish cult, though. Now that you mention it, when you do vary things, it's like I never felt that I missed something in particular. So whatever you're well, doing it's working.
1: that kind of validates what we're trying to do then, if you feel that way, because I mean, there's certain bands that do play just like the record and and Boston comes to mind. We do shows at Boston usually a couple times each each summer, and they sound just like the record. And like, you know what you're going to hear and you hear it, you know, and they do a very nice job of replicating, you know, those classic recordings, but it's, it's really no different any night. It's, and I don't think I could, you know, do that. And (laughs) I don't think I would, I would like to do that, put it that way.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I know what you mean. You know, it's funny because I, I think back to my early days and I'm sure you did this too, when you're playing cover material in clubs and after a while, you get so bored. It's like, oh, I can't do this anymore. And it'd be the same thing, right. no matter what music you're playing.
1: The first time I heard uh, cover bands that actually did like really good covers, I was very impressed. And there's a certain pride and, and talent in doing that. Um, and that was when I went to college in upstate New York. There was several bands up there that really did excellent jobs of, of covering your records and sounding just like them but beyond that accomplishment yeah at some point you, you have to like go your own way and make your own sound and your own music
0: now the only thing i can say for that is if you're sharp and you're really thinking about it while you're playing covers you're learning a lot about arrangement you're learning a lot about production indeed if you're not thinking about it you can just go through the motions and it won't sink in but if you are thinking about it you know you're pulling a Apart and putting it back together again, that's invaluable in, in terms of production experience. So, I mean, that's the cool part of it.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And then there's bands like uh, Captain Beefheart, you know, <laughs> <laughs> magic bands.
0: Yeah, right, right.
1: I just I just watched a clip. I just in the surf into a clip on YouTube yesterday, and it was just refreshing to. You know hear what they were doing in 1972
2: yeah yeah
0: well, <laughs> that almost makes me want to go look for a clip like that as a matter of fact
1: oh yeah <laughs> yeah it was it was like a it was a german tv show that that uh, had three songs on it and on the songs are like 10 minutes each <laughs> it was quite hilarious and refreshing to see it
0: i'd like to see the one where they were on saturday night live and i think that's the one episode they never show on tv again <laughs> Really? Yeah. Yeah, I I miss that. Everybody did, I think, unless you saw it when it went down. (laughs) Anyway, last question, Don. You've been in the business for a long time and you've gone through the ups and downs of not only the band, but band business. What's the best piece of business advice that either someone imparted to you or you learned along the way?
1: Um, I was completely like uh, a total novice with. And and not very sophisticated about business at any point in my career. You know, I barely you know know how to do anything in the business realm. But uh, certainly, I think we made a lot of mistakes. I, uh, Sandy Perlman was a brilliant uh, uh, strategist in, in terms of music, but he wasn't a very good businessman. And uh, you know, I think we made some bad deals along the way. There, certainly, I don't know how it is today, but uh, the record company's contracts are all all favor the stacked in the record company's favor, and you wind up paying for every bit of expense, even though they're giving you a, the advance to make records, and you know, you're the last person to make a buck, and uh, everyone is, just wants to dip into the, the grosses of, of the earnings of uh, recording artists. So I don't know, I think probably, Artists coming up today are a lot more savvy about the business than we were. So even though I've been there a long time, I'm probably not as hip as the, uh, the current people that are making big money today. They probably know exactly what they're doing.
0: Yeah. You know, it's the attorneys too. The the new generation of attorneys are a lot hipper than I think everybody was back then. There are a few that knew what they were doing, but I never had one of those guys, unfortunately, when I needed them.
1: Yeah. I mean i'm not really complaining i'm not i'm not rich but i'm not starving either I'm not, I'll, I'll always be comfortable so yeah i uh i'm actually count my blessings as far as what's happened in my life and, uh, and being able to be a, a an artist professionally for almost 50 years
0: it's quite an accomplishment not many people can say that that's for sure at the level you've been doing it at as well it's pretty amazing
2: you
1: know, I think history has been pretty kind to us as far as our legacy recordings and, and our, you know,
0: reputation. So
1: the fact that we're still good playing, you know, is, is uh, kind of makes it sort of easy for us.
0: What's even better is the reputation continues to grow with time as compared to other artists where that doesn't happen. I mean, with you guys, I think the esteem grows over time here, which is cool.
1: Yeah, I I think we were not overpraised at any point. Career, so I think there's there's still room to be appreciated, you know, rather than you know, everybody's sick of you at this point.
0: <laughs> you can get a lot more info about Buck at buckdharma.com, buckdharma B U C K D H A R M A, all one word, buckdharma.com and blue oyster cult at Blue Oyster Cult. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and now on Google Podcasts. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOInnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for your new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next
2: time.